Young. And I'm Sam Tracy. And you're listening to This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project by students and alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an awesome organization working to end the war on drugs. Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun while we're at it. We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. As always, we'll start things off with a discussion of the biggest drug news from the last week, a couple of quick hit headlines, and a forecast for upcoming events in the weeks ahead. Then it's time for the fourth and final installment of November's Drug of the Month, where we'll be going over recent trends in dextromethorphan, also known as DXM. Then, because it's Thanksgiving week here in the U.S., we've got a shorter episode than normal, and we'll be wrapping things up without a roundtable discussion, and we'll be back with a full-length episode next Sunday. So thanks for joining us for episode 72 of This Week in Drugs, and we hope you enjoy the show. Now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where usually Sam and Rochelle bring you the biggest headlines in drug news and tell you what to look forward to in the future. But Rochelle is on family vacation right now, and you've got me, Tyler, the friendly neighborhood producer here with Sam to give you your news, forecast, headlines, and uh, the rest of that whole shebang. And so I've got our first uh, bit of news. This one comes to us from TalkingDrugs.org. Uh, Ukraine is poised to fully fund opioid substitution therapy beginning in 2017. Their budget will allocate $500,000 annually to providing free opioid substitution therapy to 8,000 people who inject opioids. The program is going to be targeted at people who use heroin, as well as those who use homemade heroin substitutes. Um, Of course, like most uh, programs uh, at this point around opioid substitution therapy, the goal is to reduce the spread of disease, generally, mostly uh, HIV, Hep C, other uh, diseases that can be transmitted from intravenous drug use. Um, And this program isn't fully new to Ukraine as a program. Um, So opioid substitution therapy has been available there for the past 12 years, but it's been funded by the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. But... Ukraine recently had an increase in income status, and so the Global Fund has announced that they're planning on reducing their donations to the country by 50%, which has forced the government's intervention. Uh, but the bit of positive news here is that like, even though they're sort of doing this because they have to, they actually really don't have to. Um, and many other Eastern European governments have uh, had the same thing happen to them where the Global Fund uh, removed funding from them for these programs. And then those countries did not increase their government spending. So I think that it's worthwhile to note that Ukraine chose to allocate $500,000, a half a million dollars for uh, these folks uh, who are injecting opioids to help reduce the spread of disease. Uh, so really exciting news out of Ukraine. Yeah, this is really fantastic to see because it's, as you said, something that they don't actually have to be doing. Um, And it's really cool to see. I mean, we have the same sort of thing in the United States where a lot of the times nonprofit organizations or private groups are the ones who are funding these sorts of initiatives. And then, uh, unfortunately, government, you know, refuses to to take it on. Um, 
But it's really good to see that in this case, when they're actually, you know, pulling back some of that funding that the government is then swooping in to actually, you know, take up that mantle. And at, at first I was a little skeptical of seeing this, of that it's only $500,000 annually, which, you know, in, in in comparison to budgets in the U.S. for, for government uh, initiatives uh, is actually incredibly small. Um, but of course, it is a much smaller population. You, you mentioned it's about 8,000 people um, that this will be serving. And so in that sense, it actually uh, is a lot more more generous or at least uh, ho hopefully suitable for, for what the needs are there. Yeah, totally, totally. So I think you're right. You know, it, it seems like a small amount of money, and I wish I really knew more about the general population or budgetary constrictions of Ukraine or, like, cost of living and all of that. Uh, that's really for an economist mm -hmm. and not a uh, drug policy reform person to uh, to dive into. But anyways, yeah, I think this is good news coming out of Eastern Europe. So hopefully we'll see more. Um, I think that it does also, like – point out to the to like you're saying this really interesting fact of like nonprofits providing this sort of like budgetary concern mm -hmm. but you know that's not really a uh, sustainable strategy right. and and really what we need is governments to step up and, and put their money where their problems mm -hmm. are absolutely and speaking of problems that the government needs to deal with uh my next story coming <laughs> up here is of course in the u.s and this is that the U.S. News and World Report has obtained a heavily redacted document from uh, the Office of the Inspector General for the U.S. Postal Service, which is basically kind of the law enforcement arm um, to make sure that the, the Postal Service is running properly. Uh, so this report it outlined problems with postal workers either knowingly delivering um, and also other times stealing uh, marijuana from the mail. So this audit was completed in October, and unfortunately, it wasn't released in full. Uh, the USPS, they claimed that it would endanger investigations and it could enable criminal activity, possibly by, you know, revealing all of their protocols for handling or mishandling mail that they think contains marijuana. Uh, but even though it was heavily redacted, we were able to learn a few things from it, including that there's really no nationwide policy on how to handle suspected marijuana packages. So every facility is dealing with it differently, um, some of them in a pretty good way and some of them uh, much less responsibly. Um, and some facilities, they're simply left on a table uh, in sometimes an unlocked, unguarded area uh, where they're ripe for theft by employees. And in just the past year, there have been at least six cases of postal workers being charged for stealing marijuana or in other cases taking bribes to knowingly deliver it. Um, and obviously, there's far, likely far more of those that were not caught just because the Postal Service employs half a million people. Um, and with a, with a you know workforce that size, it's only you know just statistics that some are definitely going to be willing to steal stuff out of the mail. And marijuana is obviously, you know, a high value thing that the recipient is not going to be reporting missing. Um, so it's a pretty easy thing to just kind of scoop up if, say, your supervisor um, isn't aware or if you are the supervisor. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, I have a friend who works for the uh, Postal Service and I won't say where, uh, but he once told me that basically um, – you know, because the Postal Service is a federal federal government agency, mm -hmm. they tend to just do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he he like he's fond of saying that like no that the only thing that can pull him over on the on the road is like military mm -hmm. police. 
uh, he doesn't actually have to stop for signs. <laughs> and so wow. his, his motto is nothing stops the postal service. And I think that this mm-hmm. is, you know, while certainly a different example, I think it's an illustration of that, right? Like mm-hmm. you have this large government entity that virtually has kind of no oversight beyond its own internal oversight with, like you said, half a million people working there and a bunch of budgetary issues. Mm-hmm. And like, of course, there's a huge profit incentive to stealing the like, marijuana in the mail which is probably one of the easiest drugs to figure out if that's what it Mm -hmm. is uh and then go on and profit from it and you've got no mechanism for like you know like a seed to sale transfer where someone can say hey my marijuana didn't come like it was supposed Mm -hmm. to uh and you know i think you know you're right to point out that this is still illegal to mail uh, marijuana even within legal states Mm -hmm. Um, but this is something that eventually, like, you know, I know Colorado's making steps to make delivery more accessible and, like, those sorts of things. Like, it'll be awesome once we can start, like, handling this drug mm-hmm. as though as any other product so that there's, like, real accountability for people. And so that, like, this, I, you know, I think this is really just a problem of, like, no accountability mm-hmm. um, because it's still an illicit activity to send something through the U.S. Yeah, and, and that story is so interesting because I actually didn't realize that that a, uh, a postal truck can't get pulled over by the cops. I mean, I, I can understand it in a certain I don't know respect. if that's legally true. That's just what he's mm. told me. But I can uh, see so that just because it that. is Who basically, knows? you know, like a local or state government essentially enforcing their laws against the federal government um, because of the Postal Service being a federal entity. And I think, you know, a lot of in a lot of other cases, that's kind of just like something that they just kind of let go. And, and it, very similar to police, you know, in internal affairs being their own internal system of policing themselves, which a lot of the time lets their own people off so much. Um, This is kind of the same situation in the USPS. And um, yeah, it is definitely uh, worth pointing out, as you said, that even when it's within a legal state, you're not allowed to mail marijuana, which is just so interesting too. Just it's in such stark contrast to our neighbors up north in Canada, where they have a medical marijuana program and it's actually only done through the mail. Um, so there, because it's federally legal, um, they actually aren't, they don't even allow dispensaries. They exist in kind of a gray area, um, but there it's completely by mail and here it's co- completely the opposite. So as you said, hopefully we'll have some federal prohibition coming down soon and this will be one of the many, many, many issues that will be sorted out by that. Absolutely. So moving on to our next story, uh, this one comes to us from CBC News. Uh, And it's in Vancouver where activists are bringing more and more pop-up injection sites uh, to Vancouver's downtown east side, which some have coined as the overdose battle zone. Mm. Um, So pretty much what's happening is activists, nurses, other healthcare and social workers are basically setting up unsanctioned supervised injection facilities in order to save lives in Vancouver and specifically in the downtown east side. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically, you know, there was was an interview with some of the folks who are doing this and they're saying that everyone's doing everything they can. Uh, Obviously, Vancouver is home to Insight, uh, one of the world's few uh, uh, government-sanctioned supervised injection facilities. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of work going on around uh, battling uh, overdose death. Uh, but basically, uh, it's it's not enough is what they're saying. People are still, you know, the quote here is that uh, people are still dying left mm-hmm. and right. Um, and so these activists and nurses and other healthcare providers aren't waiting for government approval to create more sites like Insight. Mm-hmm. And instead, they're just doing this on their own, uh, which is really, you know, harkens back to what harm reduction has been for such a long time and still is in many parts of the U.S. and the world where really it's this kind of like, underground life-saving thing Mm -hmm. that the government 
doesn't endorse, uh, sometimes turns a blind eye to, but oftentimes gets in the way of. Uh, and, you know, on the ground in the reality, people are actually dying. And, like, that's really... I think, like, this is the core of harm reduction is they always say, like, any positive change. And, and these are people who are willing to go super out of their way for any positive change mm-hmm. in the lives of the folks that they're serving. Yeah. Um, they say that it costs them about $150 a day to run the tents. Uh, and right now, they're just working on crowdfunding. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's pretty much it. They're just taking donations from folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can find a donation link and, and, and pop that in there for folks if they want to want to give to the people who are setting up supervised uh, injection sites in Vancouver. Awesome. I, yeah, this is so cool to see just this kind of, you know, guerrilla activism in which people are just going out and doing it and hopefully not facing any repercussions. But if they are, they're the ones who are going to be bearing it and in, in exchange for essentially helping these people and, and saving a lot of lives. And, and it is so cool to see more and more of these popping up. Uh, as we've mentioned before on the show, this is how Insight started. They just went and did it uh, and then got government permission later. Um, so now they ended up essentially you know, being the trailblazer for this. And I, I assume that it's a lot easier for someone to set up a, a pop-up injection site like this because they have that kind of precedent to point to. Uh, and so it's they owe so much to the people who were the first ones to stick their necks out on this. Um, but it's definitely, you know, not to belittle the, the, the risk that these people are taking because I'm sure that it is still, you know, technically legal to be doing this without a license. And I, I do really hope that this inspires people here in the U.S. to... You know, take a similar approach. Um, unfortunately, we don't have that kind of insight precedent yet. Um, but there are talks about you know doing this. We've talked about uh, I think just last episode about the initiative in Ithaca in, in New York where they're trying to explicitly allow this. But you know, if there was a dedicated group of people who were willing to to take on some legal risk there and just open one of these up, that it would probably be a a much faster route to getting this done rather than having people debate about it until, you know, we've got consensus on it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's, that's really the moral here is, uh, if you're staring a problem down the face, uh, don't wait for permission to solve it, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. So, and if anyone wants to do one of those um, projects, I'm sure we'd be happy to, to put up some crowdfunding links to those too. <laughs> yeah, we'd be more than happy to bring you on the show, have you do a pitch. So if you're out there and you're listening and you're plotting on uh, safe injection facilities in the U.S., uh, please reach out to And this us. does not constitute legal advice. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, Sam, I think it's uh, the next one's mm-hmm. you. Yeah, so for our final big news story this week, it's uh, kind of a new one, kind of a rehash, but I wanted to bring it up because the so the Global Commission on Drug Policy, they've released their annual report. It's generated a lot of uh, media, an article in The Guardian, and a lot of other outlets. And, of course, is calling for the worldwide decriminalization of drugs and proposing alternatives to the current war on drugs. So, as I said, this isn't quite news since the commission has been calling for all of these reforms since their founding. Uh, but I highlight it because it's still really been only limited progress so far. So despite the overdose epidemic in the United States and the nearly global shift towards lessening penalties or even legalizing cannabis, uh, we really haven't gotten that much further in terms of the decriminalization of drug possession. And this is also full 15 years after Portugal decriminalized all drugs in 2001 meaning we've got even more data to back up arguments in favor of decriminalization. And I think one other thing I really want to highlight here is that it's important that overdose isn't the only problem with opiates. I mean, living in the U.S., the the overdose epidemic is kind of always in the news here. Um, And it is something a lot of other countries are facing, too. Um, But a lot of the rest of the world is actually also facing the opposite problem. 
And here's a direct quote from this report. And it says, for example, the UN drug control treaties are overreaching national laws, have helped create a situation whereby 5.5 billion people around the world suffer from little or no access to adequate pain relief medication because of, among other reasons, restrictions placed on prescribing opiates and other pain medicines. This lack of access violates the international right to the highest attainable standard of health. And that's the end of that quote. So basically, us inside the U.S., we're facing this problem of too many opiates, but basically the rest of the world is often facing this problem of not enough of them. And uh, it's good to keep that kind of global perspective and, and recognize that different parts of the world are facing completely different problems with these drugs. Yeah, when I was in New York for the UN General Assembly special session mm -hmm. on drug policy, I went to the uh, Museum of Drug Policy put on by Open Society Foundations and... Um, they had this amazing and like really terrifying map that like it was just a you know map of the world and they just stuck a bunch of like empty like uh, gel caplets mm. um, in the countries that like had adequate access to uh, painkillers mm -hmm. and then you know and you look at this map and it's just basically like the global west mm. and the global north uh, you know it's it's Russia and the U S and like Europe and like some part in like Australia mm -hmm. and then nowhere else and it's just terrifying and i was thinking about this the other day because i had a friend who was talking to me about uh some uh, family who was looking for like pain relief uh, uh solutions and i was just thinking about how you know we were talking about all these different options that were on the table for them and i'm just like wow like what a ridiculous conversation that almost anywhere else in the world like you would just be talking about like how to get through the pain mm -hmm. not like what is the best option out of this rich menu of pain relievers that that we have available to us um and i'm just like it was it was really mind-blowing and like humbling and and something very concerning and, and i think that this is it's great that we focus too on that right because there's always you know this whole like people are, are talking about like the problems with opiates as this like epidemic as like this really common and ever present talking point mm -hmm. about drug policy. And I think that it's really important too to talk about the other places where like, you're not talking about an opiate epidemic. You're talking about people who are living their lives in excruciating pain without access to like standard painkillers that like we could give anyone mm -hmm. here. Um, you know, I just, it's, yeah, this is, I'm really glad you highlighted that Sam. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's definitely, I couldn't agree more, just that we, we need to be taking a really global look at this, especially when it comes to actions like the UN, which, you know, being run by countries like Russia, France, the United States are kind of the heavyweights in the UN. We have to be really mindful of not applying uh, solutions to the entire world that are only really fixing, you know, American or Western problems. Um so yeah, that's about it for the long news stories. And then do you want to start things off with our quick hit headlines? Sure. Our first headline is from Australia, where thousands of free pill testing kits will be flooding Sydney's summer music festivals. Harm Reduction Australia, the Ted Knopf's Foundation, the Australian Drug Observatory, Students for Sensible Drug Policy Australia, and the Victoria-based DanceWise have combined to launch the Just One Life campaign, which will be distributing drug checking kits at festivals this festival season. Awesome. And in Singapore, they've executed a 38-year-old Nigerian man for possessing 2.6 kilograms of cannabis, which equals about 6 pounds. Uh, and last year, three out of the four people executed in Singapore were for drug crimes, with only the one of those being for murder. That's too bad. Um, 
In Colorado, state licensing officials announced a new rule that will keep bars and many restaurants from applying for the new social marijuana use permits passed by Initiative 300. The new regulation starting January 1st will make it so that liquor licensees cannot allow the consumption of marijuana on their pre premises. It greatly expands the types of businesses that likely will be disqualified from applying for the new per permits for on-site marijuana consumption when the city makes applications for those available in late January as required by Initiative 300. And finally, the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, also known as the ATF, has added a new note to applications for gun licenses, stating, quote, The use or possession of marijuana remains unlawful under federal law, regardless of whether it has been legalized or decriminalized for medicinal or recreational purposes in the state where you reside, end quote. And unfortunately, the NRA has remained completely silent on this issue. That is too bad. Um... So I guess we'll move right on into our weekly forecast here. Uh, and mine's up first, and it's that time of the year again. Uh, we're closing out the 2016. Thank God everyone's <laughs> ready for this terrible year to be mm -hmm. over. And uh, the first thing you can do in 2017 is take the 2017 Global Drug Survey. Uh, we'll post a link to it in the episode description. And it just, you know, it feels like yesterday we were just plugging the 2016 Global Drug mm -hmm. Survey. Uh, time really flies, and I can't wait until the next four years are over. And November 29th, which is this coming Tuesday, our friends at the Cannabis Cultural Association are hosting an event in New York City called Deciphering Intergenerational Experiences with Cannabis. For those unfamiliar, the CCA is all about including underrepresented voices in the cannabis industry and movement, so this event should be a really great one as they'll be talking about what I consider to be a largely ignored issue, which is how different generations were introduced to and how they currently relate to cannabis. So it'll be including a panel discussion uh, and a social afterwards, so we'll have the link uh, to their Eventbrite page up on our website if you're interested in grabbing some tickets. And that is all for this week's weekly news and forecast. Uh, as always, there's so much going on that we really can't keep track of everything. So if you've got uh, a news story that you found particularly interesting or you want to make sure that we cover on the show, or, or particularly if you've got an event coming up that you'd like us to highlight, please send it to us. You can send us it by email at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com or send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, and we'd be happy to include it in next week's show. This week's ad is a donation from our show to what we all think is a very worthy cause. Ross Ulbricht was sentenced to life in prison for operating the Silk Road. But that's not the end of the story. Ross is trying to get out, but he needs your help. The Free Rossathon is a new event happening next Sunday, December 4th, from 2 to 10 p.m. Eastern, and will feature a ton of amazing speakers in order to raise money for Ross's appeal. We've previously had Ross's mother, Lynn Ulbricht, on the show to talk about his case and how they're fighting back. That was episode 7 if you want to go back and check it out. So we definitely recommend supporting this event. Go to freeross.org to learn more, and please give whatever you can to help. Again, that's freeross.org, and the Free Rossathon is next Sunday, December 4th.
And now it's time for the drug of the month, where we give an introduction and dive into the science, history, and trends in a different drug each month of the year. For November 2016, that drug has been dextromethorphan, also known as DXM, which is the active ingredient in products like Robitussin and, when taken in large enough doses, the compound responsible for what's known as robotripping. For this, our fourth and final installment, I'll be talking about some recent news items and trends in the use and regulation of dextromethorphan. Unfortunately, while robotripping has become enough of a phenomenon that the average teenager's probably heard of it, it's not likely they understand exactly what drug they're taking or how it works. Because of this, surveys will usually avoid asking a question like, have you consumed large quantities of dextromethorphan, and instead ask the much simpler, have you consumed large quantities of over-the-counter cough syrup. While this makes more sense to a casual user, it loses a bit of accuracy since it could also include people abusing cough syrups with different formulations. Despite this one problem, we do have some pretty good data on DXM usage and trends in, in that use. Monitoring the future, one of the major drug surveys of American youth started asking about over-the-counter cough syrup in 2006, and at that time, 5.4% of high schoolers said they'd used it at least once in the past year. In 2015, which is the latest year for which data is available, that had decreased to 3.1%, a pretty substantial drop that applied across all grade levels. While impossible to quantify, some of that drop probably is due to the natural cycles of drug fads, since recreational drug consumption is a very social phenomenon, and many drugs have come in and out of style over the years, independent of their availability. It may well be just that robo-tripping became popular as a curiosity, but that it was not enjoyable enough for many people to become regular users, so it just dropped off as more people tried it and didn't really like it. Surges are also fueled by sensationalist media reports, and those were commonplace for DXM, especially in the late 90s and early 2000s, just like we've seen more recently with other drugs such as Salvia Divinorum. But aside from it simply going out of style, some of that decrease in use can certainly be attributed to both voluntary and government responses to the recreational use of DXM. As Rochelle explained in the history segment, DXM was not included in the Controlled Substances Act. But, in 2005, the FDA issued a warning on it after five deaths were attributed to DXM overdoses that year. It's no coincidence that Monitoring the Future started asking about DXM usage or cough syrup usage the next year. In 2007, the DEA then asked the FDA to conduct research on dextromethorphan and provide a recommendation for whether or not it should be scheduled then. The FDA concluded that it should not, but that it was monitoring the situation and could change its recommendation if abuse increased. Despite the lack of federal scheduling, some states took matters into their own hands and heightened restrictions on DXM products. In 2012, California became the first state to put dextromethorphan behind the counter, requiring an ID proving customers were 18 years old before selling it to them. New York followed the next year, and as of this recording, 10 states have passed such restrictions, the most recent being Florida, which just passed its age requirement law this year and will have it go into effect in 2017. Some are pushing for the federal government to implement these age requirements nationwide. In last year, a bill called the DXM Abuse Prevention Act of 2015 was introduced by Congressman Bill Johnson, who's a Republican from Ohio. With only 21 sponsors, the bill did not get much traction, but it's unclear if it would actually do much to reduce DXM use since the downward trend in robotripping was already happening when they started measuring it in 2006, far before any of these states had passed those requirements. While there has been such a push for regulation in the U.S., concerns over robotripping are much more of a minor concern than a national hysteria. But that was not the case in Indonesia, where they didn't just add age requirements, but went much further and outright banned DXM in 2014. 
This was fueled by some serious hysteria, with one official justifying the ban by saying dextromethorphan is even more dangerous than morphine and that people addicted to it cannot be rehabilitated. That's all for this segment on news and trends surrounding dextromethorphan, our drug of the month for November. Of course, we'll be staying on top of current events in our weekly news segment, and we'll be sure to cover any additional age restrictions or bans on DXM if they continue to be introduced and passed. We'll be back next week with the introduction for December's Drug of the Month. Thanks for listening to episode 72 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Rochelle Young and me, Sam Tracy. The show is produced by Tyler Williams, and Sarah Merrigan is our engagement director. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more information about the show, including links to our guests, news stories, and forecasts. Also, This Week in Drugs is an all-volunteer project. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support our work, please check out our Patreon page, which is linked to on our website. This allows you to commit to a small monthly donation to help defray the cost of our web hosting fees. That's all for episode 72 of This Week in Drugs. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you next week. Our outro song this week is Holy Day by Wes Meadows. Say